Today's a pretty exciting day because as far as our Sunday series is concerned, we're concluding our series, This Is Us. Uh, now, what we've been doing is, is looking into the Word of God and seeing who God calls us to be based on the mirror of God's Word. But last Sunday and today, we've done something kind of unique. And so if you missed last week, that's all right. Let me just tell you kind of where we're headed today. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaches what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And this is significant because it's really like the inaugural address of his ministry. I mean, Jesus is coming on the scene and he preaches this uh, message in the first several chapters here of Matthew that, that just polarizes what the kingdom of heaven really is uh, against what religion has shown it to be up to that point. And, and to be honest, if we look at our culture today and you read through that sermon, it's just as polarizing. So often it's easy for us and, and the world at large to look at Christendom and, and see it for something that it really isn't intended to be. And so when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, when we come to this message, and in particular, these first few verses called the Beatitudes, it, it ought to cause us to realign our perspective. It ought to cause us to come back into focus with what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus is saying in this text is, hey, this is what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And he begins by giving us eight blessings. Now I asked earlier if anybody likes to be blessed. Jesus starts out his introduction to the kingdom of heaven with eight blessings. And as we look at these blessings, I want you to understand something about the Beatitudes, because my guess is that's probably not a word you used this week in conversation. But Beatitudes are the attitudes that ought to be in the life of a Christian. Let me say that again, because I think it'll stick. Beatitudes are the attitudes that ought to be in the life of a Christian. So when we look at these things, they're not necessarily prescriptive, they're descriptive. These are the things that ought to be present in your life and in my life as we serve Jesus. And so we're going to look together in Matthew chapter 5, and, and last week we talked about four of them. And then today we're going to talk about the next four. But I just want to Read these blessings. All right, look at it with me. Matthew chapter 5, and it begins in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll stop right there. Again, I want to emphasize that these blessings are not prescriptive. They're not saying this is what you need to do to attain the blessing of God. They're descriptive. They're saying if you're a child of God, if you're a part of the kingdom that Jesus has established, these are indicative of your life. And this is how it helps us to refocus because if we're honest, and I hope we are, we're in church, come on. 
Come on, you guys lighten up a little bit. Not in that kind of church. If we're honest, we don't always fit this mold. And neither did the people that Jesus was talking to. And so it's an opportunity for us to look at it and to lean into what God is saying. So let me just quickly back you up through the first four with just a short synopsis. The first one, it begins with saying we're poor in spirit. Recognizing that we're poor in spirit. And if you are, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. What that means to be poor in spirit, it means, hey, you can have it all. The kingdom of heaven. You just can't earn it at all. You can have it all, you just can't earn it at all. And when it comes to earning it, you're poor in spirit. You know, this Tuesday uh, is going to be a significant day on the Christian calendar. This Tuesday marks the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. On October 31st, of 1517, Martin Luther went and posted his 95 Thesis on the door at the, the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And one of the things that he said in that thesis, when he posted it there, was sola gratia, which means grace alone. The, the issue that he had with the church, and one of the emphasis of his thesis was this reality that the church had gotten uh, so caught up in, in selling uh, indulgences to make penitence for people's sin. They were selling indulgences, and, and it got to the point that people felt like they could purchase grace. They could purchase forgiveness, purchase salvation. And so the, the Lord led him to make that that statement in that sola gratia was saying it's by grace alone that we're saved. He wasn't saying anything new. He was refocusing the church right back to what Jesus said it's all supposed to be about. You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. If you realize that in the economy of God's mercy, I am a beggar. It's by grace alone that we're saved. And then the next blessing says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be Comforted, And what happens is this, when we become aware of the holiness of God, at the same time, we become aware of our unholiness. And so the moment that our hearts become uh, convicted of sin and unrighteousness, the moment that we open up a desire to go after God, all of a sudden we become aware of things in our own life that the Holy Spirit wants to refine and prune and shape and, and mold us into the image of God. And so what happens is we mourn. We mourn for our own sin. And we also mourn for the grip that sin has on a lost world. The same way that Jesus did when He saw Jerusalem like sheep without a shepherd. We mourn. Because of the hold that sin has on people's lives. And then the fifth blessing, or the verse 5, the third blessing, says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And last week we talked about how meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power that is harnessed. It's power that is under the control of God. And, and that's the activation of your life when you've come to the Lord in poverty and when you've humbled yourself and repented of sin. Now you recognize it's the Spirit of Christ, the one we sang about today, that lives on the inside of you. And your life is yielded and submitted to His Lordship. He can use you now for His glory. That's the next step. See, what I want you to see today is not just that all these things are attributes and attitudes of a believer, but I want you to see a progression. I want you to see that we don't just, we don't just all jump into the deep end. 
And I don't know where you're at in your personal relationship with God today, but I'm hoping that you'll see I'm somewhere on this spectrum. And it starts way on one end with just recognizing that I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve heaven. My good works can't save me. I'm poor in spirit. But as we move towards that acknowledgement of sin and towards that humility and we surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, we operate in meekness. And then the next one that we looked at and we ended here last week was this blessing for those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, when we, we get into the kingdom of God, our appetites change. Our desires begin to shift. And we go after the things of God like we never did before. It's unnatural to die to self. It's unnatural to make yourself a living sacrifice. But yet the Bible says in Romans 12, this is our reasonable act of service. Why? Because it's in light and in view of the mercy of God. Suddenly we have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And can I just say to you today, before we jump into the next half of this, that that's what God wants for you. He wants to stir up an appetite for His presence. You made a good choice by coming to church this morning. Amen? Amen? See, a lot of times I, I, I don't really think I'm hungry until my neighbor starts firing up the barbecue. You ever had that experience? You know, you, you, you catch, you know, a smell. I can be walking in the mall, totally content. And then I go past Annie Ann's and all of a sudden I have to have a pretzel. Right? That's what happens when we get around God's people. That's what happens when we get in the presence of God. So just coming, even with no appetite, you made the right choice. Because God wants to stir up a hunger and a desire in your heart and life for more of Him. Now, we're going to jump into these next few. And I'm just going to forewarn you, following Jesus doesn't get easier. Okay? So if you struggled so far, I'm just giving you the heads up here. And that's why these blessings that Jesus said, these are blessings in your life. They, they flip conventional wisdom upside down. Jesus says... In verse 7, look at it with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Can I just say in this culture, in this Roman culture that Jesus was speaking in, mercy was not an attribute that was celebrated. Now they, they celebrated courage. They celebrated justice. Uh, they, they admired wisdom. But the philosophers of the day had a phrase to describe mercy. The phrase was a disease of the soul. That was the outlook on mercy. A disease of the soul. You got to understand, this is a day and a time when slaves were looked at as nothing more than disposable property. And, and women weren't treated much better. This was a day and a time where if, if a man... His wife gave birth to a girl or to an unhealthy boy. He had the option of just ignoring and that child and letting it die. Mercy was not a gift to be admired in this culture and in this society. But when Jesus comes and ushers in a new kingdom, he says, blessed are the merciful. And then he commands us as his followers to be merciful. And as I said earlier, meekness is strength that is harnessed for usefulness. Meekness is not weakness, it's power that is controlled. But understand this today, when we demonstrate mercy, it's a revelation 
of that power. The power of God inside of us. When we demonstrate mercy in our lives, it's a revelation of that power. Let me explain it like this. Mercy is an attribute of God's character. It's a demonstration of who He is. God is love. We know that. He is. God is love. It's His nature. All love emanates from God. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift, the Bible says. God is love. But can I just tell you, nobody is saved just because God loves them. The reality is there's a lot of people who will spend an eternity separated from God. Separated from a God who loves them. God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that He gave His Son. God's love is for everybody, no doubt. There's a lot of people that will not make it to heaven because God loving them is not enough to save them. What did God do? He demonstrated His love, right? Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration of God's love. And the demonstration of God's love for us is often manifest in mercy. Because mercy means just not getting what you deserve. And we figured it out at step one when we were poor in spirit. We don't deserve mercy. But God demonstrated His power to save, to deliver, to make you right with Him by giving you mercy, by not giving you the punishment that you deserve. And then Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, that doesn't mean if you're merciful to everybody else that God's going to be merciful to you. Because then we get right back to that place of works and not grace. Listen, mercy can never be earned. Never. You can never earn the mercy of God. If you could earn it, we wouldn't call it mercy. We'd call it justice. We'd say you deserve it. That's the idea of mercy. You don't deserve it. You got it anyway. That's why it's mercy. And so he's not saying that if you show enough people mercy, then God's going to show you mercy. He's talking about the character that defines us. The reality is we are merciful because we have received mercy. It it requires power in your life to even give mercy. How many of you ever, as a kid, I did this with my brothers. How many of you ever played a game called mercy? Boredom is usually the motivator for a game like this. Because it's not logical. But sometimes my brother would just walk up to me and he would put his hands out and say, let's play mercy. And I knew what that meant. That meant I was going to lock my hands with his hands and we were going to begin to twist and turn each other's arms until one of them got so bent out of shape that he couldn't take it anymore. And what does he say? Mercy. Mercy. That means you're more powerful than me. I want out and I can't get out on my own. So I'm asking for mercy. Sometimes my older brother didn't know what mercy meant. (laughs) But we do. And so to to give mercy means you have to have power. If I'm if I'm losing that battle, I don't have any power, I can't offer mercy. I didn't I need it. I can't offer it. I need it. But if I have the power, if I have the ability to inflict justice, to retaliate to a situation. 
And instead, I choose mercy. That's a reflection of the character and the heart of God in your life. That's a revelation of meekness. That means I have the power to hurt you. I have the power to retaliate. You said this about me, I'm going to say that about you. You did this to me, I'm going to do that to you. But just because I have the ability to do it, doesn't mean I'm going to do it. I choose to harness that power, to submit it to the control of the Lord. I choose mercy. That's why to have mercy, you've got to have power. And so meekness comes before Mercy. But to have mercy, you also have to have great faith. And the reason you have to have great faith is because the reason we don't want to show mercy is because we don't believe sometimes that God is just. And I know we wouldn't say that. Don't go too far down that thought with me. But the reality is, just think about it. When we want to retaliate to a situation, we, we have been done wrong. When somebody's done something and, and, and we want to get even... We want justice. We want retribution. We want things to be made right. But in taking that situation into our own hands, what we're really saying is, I don't trust that God is just. What we're saying is, I don't trust that God is going to handle this situation, so I'm going to impose my power. I'm going to unharness my power, my ability, my influence, from the hand of God back into my own strength and I'm going to get justice for myself. Let me give you a verse to back this thought up. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. This is what it says. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. See, a person who demonstrates mercy when they could impose their will is a person that understands that revenge, that vengeance is the Lord's. That I I don't have to respond in a hateful way. I don't have to uh, be reactionary. I don't have to uh, give you what's coming to you because I understand That vengeance belongs to the Lord. He's in control and I can trust Him with us, with my life. Now let's look at the second one here, verse 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I can't help but think about this blessing And go back to my misunderstanding of it growing up in the church. Let me just say this to to, to bring some clarity. If you catch nothing else about this thought, hear this. Purity is a process. It's a process. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. But can I tell you what the Bible says about your heart? Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 in verse 8. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But blessed are the pure in heart. But the prophet Jeremiah goes even farther than that. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now that's just... 
That's an observation on the condition of all of us. The condition of our heart. Is that we can say we honor God with our lips and with our songs, but our hearts can be far from Him. Jeremiah says, the heart is the most wicked thing. Nobody can understand it. It's beyond cure. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and He says, blessed are the pure in heart. So if... If this is what the Bible tells me my heart's like, it's wicked and beyond cure, and Jesus says you're blessed if your heart's pure, that tells me that purity is not something I was born with. Purity is a process. Purity is something I move towards. See, see I, grew, I grew up in the church. And, and I think what happened is I began to understand that purity was synonymous with innocence. Because, you know, you go into youth group as a teenager and, and, and they, they do the, the sex talk. And, and they feel awkward talking about virginity. So they just use that church word instead. They call it purity. And so I understood purity is something that I'm born with and then I can lose it. And if I lose it, I can never get it back. That might be true of virginity, but that's not true of purity. None of us are born with purity. Our hearts are wicked. That's why we have to start with the acknowledgement that I'm poor in spirit. I'm not pure. But purity is something that grows as I come to Christ for salvation. As I mourn over my own sinfulness. As I yield my life through meekness to His Lordship. As I hunger and desire for more of His presence in righteousness. All of a sudden, I start moving into a place. Where God begins to mold me into the image of Christ Jesus. Purity is something that grows in our hearts. It's not just something that that we had and then we lost. Purity is something that Jesus does in us through the work of redemption. The, the Bible says, many of you are familiar with this verse, but in 1 John 1, 7 it says, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. When we come to Christ... He makes us pure. But can I tell you today, on a practical level, purity goes a lot farther than that. It's more than just God forgiving us of our sins. It also, purity purifies us from our past. It cleanses us in our intentions. It it changes. As we become more pure, our desires change. Jeremiah said it this way. He said, the Lord will give us singleness of heart. David said it like this in Psalm 101. He said, uh, Lord, I have served you with a perfect heart. Now, if you know anything about the life of David, you know he wasn't perfect. But that's not what he was saying. He was not saying, I do it all right all the time. He's the last guy in the world that could ever say, I do it all right all the time. What he was saying is, my intentions are right. And when he blew it big, he repented big. And the reason that God looked at David's life and he said, you're my chosen one above all your sons. And he said, you're the chosen king above Saul and all else. The reason that God anointed his life was not because of his sinlessness. It was because of his singleness of heart. David, when he blew it big, he came back to God. He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. What was he saying? He was saying, God, I don't want anything to separate me from you. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wicked. I know I've blown it. But God, I'm serving you with a single heart. 
I'm serving you with a heart of purity. I want, I want to honor you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's relieving for me. To know that God would look at us today and not say, hey, did you do it all right? No, he's looking at your heart today. And he wants us to have singleness of heart. To go out of this place today and say, God, there, there's nothing, there's nothing that I desire more than your glory. There's nothing that I desire more than for you to be honored in my life. Probably didn't nail it this week. Probably didn't get it right every time. But God, make my heart pure. That's, that's what we do when we come back to God in confession on a Sunday like this. It's not always about salvation, right? Now, if you were a kid, it probably was. I got saved every week in church. Anybody else? I'm like, every week, I'm like, yeah, that's me. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I got saved so many times in church. But sometimes we don't respond because we need to be saved again. But we sense the Holy Spirit. What's He doing? He's purifying us. And you recognize, boy, there's some things in my life that I know God wants to deal with today. And you sense His presence and sometimes your hand goes up or or you come to an altar to spend time in prayer. It's not about your salvation. It's not about security and whether your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the reality that you want to have a heart that is singly devoted to God. And there's constantly things that are trying to divide your attention, pull away from your focus. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? What's the, what's the, he said, for they will see God. Now, can I tell you what that doesn't mean? I, I don't believe that Jesus is saying, if you're pure in heart, uh, you're going to have a vision. I don't think Jesus is saying, if you're pure in heart, you're going to have a dream. I don't even think Jesus is saying, if you're pure in heart, you're going to see God face to face one day after you die or Jesus comes back for the church. I believe the promise that is ours today is that when you're pure in heart, you can see God in your daily life. How many times have we been at that place where we've prayed and said, God, I don't know what you're doing. God, I don't know what you want me to do. God, I don't know what's going on in my life. We have no vision. We don't have clarity. What do we have? Confusion. Why? Because we have die vision. But when we have singleness of heart, things come back into focus. And we have purity because our whole soul desire is for His glory and His honor. And what happens? We begin to see God. The steps of the righteous are ordered by God. Can I get an amen? God wants to give clarity in your life. Now the problem is a lot of people, they, they, they're at first base here. They're, they're way back here at the beginning of the process. And they're hung up on the fact that they don't know what to do. That's why the Bible says when we come to God, we ought to come with the faith of a child. Faith of a child doesn't ask questions. I mean, you say jump and you better be ready. They're going to jump. They're not going to ask you when. Are you going to count to three? Is it one, two, three, jump? Or is it one, two, jump? Like, are you going to catch me? Should I go this way? And No. You put a kid up on the counter and say jump. And before you know it, they are in your arms. That's the faith that we come to Christ with. We just come with faith. A lot of people can't do that because they want God to answer all the questions about their future and where they're headed and how things are going to work and why things didn't go the way they thought they should. It's a process. Can we just say that? It's a process. That God leads us to a place of purity of heart. We begin to see God. I don't have all the answers about my future. 
None of us do. But I can tell you, I can see God more clearly today than I could 10 years ago. I can see where God's leading me today more than I could five years ago. Why? Because the pure in heart see God. Look at the next one with me. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Again, these things are descriptive of who we are. These are characteristics that Jesus isn't just saying, you got to do this and you got to do that and you need to do that and don't forget to cover the other thing. No, these are the characteristics of the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the king. And so these are not just things that we're supposed to embody. These are things that we embody as we reflect him. So that tells us that Jesus was a peacemaker. When Jesus was born, the angelic announcement to the the shepherds was what? Good tidings of peace. Peace on earth. It's funny how some people interpret uh, because they read about wars in the Bible that That God is not a God of peace. I want to tell you, God is a God of peace. Sin entered the narrative in Genesis. And from that moment, God has been fighting to recognize, uh, to rectify peace with us. Through the blood of His own Son. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit gives us peace. The Word of God is a book about peace. Peace. And that's how it starts and that's how it's going to end. There's going to be peace as God resolves all the conflict. I'm going to tell you, peace is not a personality type. It's a fruit of the Spirit. That's what Galatians tells us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that, that grows in your life. Peacemakers are people that actively work to bring about peace and reconciliation where there's hatred, where there's enmity, where there's strife. Peacemakers are proactive. It means they bring peace where there isn't peace. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said peacemakers. I think maybe sometimes that's the reason that we're not as effective as the body of Christ As we're supposed to be. Because we spend all of our energy trying to keep the peace in the church. Instead of make the peace outside of the church. Somebody should have agreed with that besides Chris. You act like I'm the only one that's been saved for any length of time. We can spend all of our energy being peacekeepers. And we feel like we've done something. Like, whoa, wasn't that great? We all got along. Hey, we even did um, an interdenominational event with another church. Wasn't that neat? Congratulations. You kept the peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those that can move into situations where there is no peace and they can bring His peace. It's important that we understand in doing that. Because God has called us to do that. But this is really important. Because we start getting into gray areas when we... We talk about issues in our culture. We can take up the banner of peace and say, I feel called of God to bring peace. But I I want you to pay attention to the order that Jesus lays these things out in. Because peace follows purity. And that's important. Because to be pure 
is to be aligned with the Word of God. And you can't bring peace in a situation in Christ's name if it's not aligned with the Word of God. Let me tell you what I mean. There's a lot of people out there that would, that would do some things to, to link arms across the aisle, to bring unity, to bring love and, and diversity and all the fun watchwords that we want to tie into peace. But I want to tell you, if you're bringing peace outside of purity... It's not a characteristic of the kingdom of God. You can't sacrifice the word of God for the sake of can't we all get along and still put Jesus' name on it and think he's going to bless it. Listen, the Bible says live at peace with all men as much as it is up to you. Which means we got to do everything we can do to live at peace with all men. But it also says as much as it's up to you. Sometimes it's out of our hands. I'm all for Getting together with, with the church down the street. I'm all for celebrating uh, people that are doing good works around the earth. Whether they're doing a spiritual work or just a work of compassion in me. I'm all for that. We can partner up with all kinds of people. But what we see people trying to do in this politically correct day we live in is peace outside of purity. When we have these interfaith services. We're going to pray to God, then we're going to pray to Muhammad, then we're going to pray to whoever else, somebody else wants to pray to, because it's all good. No, it's not. It's not all good, because you have bypassed the purity of the Word of God for the sake of holding hands and having peace on earth. That's not the kind of peace Jesus came to bring. So it's important that we understand what God has called us to. First of all, that we receive With purity, the engrafted word of God. That we receive God's word. And with that word in our hearts, we walk in peace. It's important that we know that peace comes after purity. But it's also important that we know what comes after peace. Look at the last one. Verse 10. It says, blessed You're going to love this one. I know I'm going to get amens on this one. (laughs) Blessed are the persecuted. Because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a way to end a seven week series, right? Hey, this is us. We're persecuted. Let's close in prayer. Right? Not quite the climax we were anticipating. This... This blessing communicates, it reiterates how poor a translation it is that some Bibles, and if you have this one, it's fine, but I'm just going to tell you this is a bad translation. Some Bibles uh, call these the happy sayings. Happy is the one who is poor in spirit. Happy is he who mourns. Happy is he who... Well, listen, you ain't happy if you're persecuted. If you are, something's wrong with you. Something else you need to pray about today. These blessings are not about happiness. Blessings are a lot deeper than happenings. Blessings are the ability to experience the joy of the Lord that sustains our spirit and gives us strength regardless of what we're facing. The Beatitudes, they're not a buffet. You don't, you don't walk up this morning and go, you know what, I think I'll have a little hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I think I'll, maybe I need a little meekness this week. No, 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 I'm good on persecution. No, thanks. No, it's not a buffet line of blessings that we get to pick and choose. Jesus says, when you begin to follow me, this is the way I'm going. When you begin to walk in surrender to the word of God, this is where I'm headed. Jesus says, you're blessed. I love that verse 11 is there. We've got to read verse 11. Because this is a clarification of verse 10. Verse 11 says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I love that he put that in there. You're blessed if people falsely say all kinds of evil against you. There's some people that are waving the martyr flag and they deserved it. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just not wise. They're saying things and doing things that are just causing conflict. They're pot stirrers. I know they're not here. I'm talking about those other folks, you know. And so Jesus clarifies, hey, you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness. If people falsely say all things against you. Now, if you go out and, and, and act stupid and say in Jesus' name, that doesn't work. No blessing there. But he says if they're falsely persecuting you for righteousness sake, there's a blessing in that because that persecution comes because a person has embodied the attitudes of a believer. When a person lives the way that Jesus mapped out for us, the way that he lived, it's countercultural. Now, why, why in the world would somebody look at a person who doesn't think too much of themselves because they're poor in spirit? A person that, that, that grieves when they make mistakes, they mourn. A person that, that knows how to submit their power and influence to the control of the Holy Spirit. They're yielded, they're meek. A person that hungers and, and pursues righteousness. All these things that we talked about now. How would a person see that and want to persecute them? Well, I can assure you. It happened then and it happens now. And it always will. That's why Jesus says in these words... Rejoice and be glad, verse 12, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The same way they persecuted them, the same way they're persecuting you. So he tells us, here's how you handle it. When it comes, you don't retaliate. You trust that vengeance comes from the Lord. Stay meek. Stay humble. What you do is you, you praise God. You rejoice. Man, that's hard. I told you it doesn't get easier. <laughs> that's what the disciples did. When they were taken out and flogged for preaching in the name of Jesus, their testimony in Acts 5.41, it says, they said, we rejoice because we've been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. They counted it worthy. And I, I got to be honest. Th this thing about being blessed in persecution. It doesn't fit well with the American version of Christianity. That's why it's good sometimes to take a mission trip somewhere else. That's why it's good sometimes to, uh, to talk with folks that have lived in other parts of the world. Like Ralph and Mervet. She was telling me about uh, her niece. Is it your niece? That was in Egypt. Being persecuted. Being persecuted. 
It's hard for us to, to realize that, hey, this, this is not rose petals and unicorns. That was never promised. When Jesus said, follow me, he said, take up your cross. And he's leading us towards something. And when we're persecuted for righteousness, the blessing is that we're purged of this world. I was going to tell you, if, if you're, and I thank God we're not there, so this isn't a guilt trip. I mean, as long as we've got freedom, praise God. But if you were in a place where you had to sneak to some underground church and you had to whisper the song so that people didn't hear you singing too loud and you couldn't have a Bible and your pastor couldn't have a Bible, but somebody smuggled him a couple pages and he's been preaching on those same two pages for the last two years. If you were in that situation... And every time you even thought about Jesus, you recognize you were putting your life on the line. I can promise you, you're not struggling with the same shallow sin nature that, that we struggle with today. That stuff has long died off. If you made a commitment to follow Jesus and it's worth risking your life, all of the pettiness that trips us up oftentimes in the church, that stuff's behind you. You're no longer hindered by those things anymore. I'm going to give that to you in a verse. In fact, guys, if you can grab this one, it's 1 Peter chapter 4. I just want you to see this and then we're going to pray. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because, listen to this, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. I mean, if it got to the point that you're actually suffering in your body, I mean, could you imagine somebody that's locked in some prison being tortured? I don't think they're struggling with pornography anymore. You know, it's like, hey, can I just survive today? I don't think they're, you know, struggling with, with greed. I don't think they're, they're battling the, the, the sin nature that they used to battle. They're on a different level because a person that struggles in the body, who suffers, is done with sin. And as a result, it says, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. How in the world is persecution a blessing? Because persecution pushes us towards God. And we don't have time to go there today, but I would challenge you, study church history, and you'll find that the church... Everywhere it has advanced, it has left a blood trail of the martyrs. Everywhere the church has advanced across this globe, the expansion has come because of persecution. Because when we have to really take a stand for our faith, we're done. We're done with sin. We're done with the human earthly desires. And we're consumed, rather, with the will of God. And I just want to tell you, Facing persecution is the ultimate display of a life that reflects the characteristics of the kingdom of God. There's no greater picture of the kingdom of God than to see Jesus on a cross giving his life for mankind. I want to pray for you as we conclude this service today. Right where you're seated, I want to just invite you to bow your head for a moment. And as we pray, maybe you're here today and... And you need to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what was in your heart before you even came today. Before you heard a message. 
You didn't need me to tell you. The Holy Spirit is the one that draws us. The Bible says no one seeks God unless the Spirit draws them. Which means there's no way I could have said enough or said it well enough to lead you to salvation. It's just like Martin Luther said 500 years ago. It's grace alone. So if that's you today and you say, man, I, I, need, to, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to, I need to come poor in spirit. I want to pray for you at the conclusion of this service. And so every head's bowed. We're about to pray. While eyes are closed. This is personal. This is between you and God. I want to ask you to take a step of faith by simply raising a hand. If that's you and you say, I need Jesus to forgive me of my sins and save me. I want to begin this process. I don't know that I'd ever die for him, but I know today he's asking me to live for him. So I want to begin the process. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Say, Pastor, pray for me. Pray with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. People are responding to the Spirit of God. He's calling you. To empty yourself of your self-works. Empty yourself of any notion that you might be good enough. And to come poor in spirit. Jesus will lead you into who he wants you to be. But you've got to start somewhere. And that's what we're doing right now. So church, I'm going to lead them in this prayer. I want everyone to pray it with me. Let's help them begin the journey. Come on, say this out loud. Say, dear God, I acknowledge my sin. And the punishment that it deserves. The wages of sin is death. But thank you, God, that Jesus paid the price. I put my faith in Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And from this day forward, the leader of my life. Thank you, God, for rescuing me. Give me your Holy Spirit. To help me walk in truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.